Hey, you guys, it's Sharpie. I'm the guest from episode number 20. I like to travel to the edge of the known universe and peer over the edge to see what's out there. It's sort of like digging below the surface, tapping into the electromagnetic network of fungi and tree roots to try and figure out what they're talking about. Spread the word to anyone who you think may be interested in expanding their horizon and growing their universe. Thanks, guys. Tune in soon. Welcome to ATBS The Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick. Thanks for choosing to listen. Today, Richard Hamilton joins me for this, the fourth in a five-part series of episodes focused on epigenetics. Richard and I will be exploring mindfulness and how the practice of dwelling in the present moment influences our epigenome. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Richard, welcome back to ATBS, the podcast for our fourth in a series of epigenetic episodes. I appreciate you being here today. It's always a pleasure, Jeff. Glad to hear you. If you're just tuning in to our series of epigenetic episodes, I would encourage you to visit and, and listen to the epigenetic overview, which is a great starting point. And then you can jump into epigenetics of nutrition or epigenetics of movement, or in this case of mindfulness. And in, these are in no particular order, but the overview will help get you started. So Richard, uh, today, epigenetics and mindfulness. I think mindfulness has a, I don't know, it's a little bit like walking into a yoga studio for the first time or practicing Qigong for the first time. I think it can be a little bit intimidating for people. And we've talked about that. Let's talk about how it affects our epigenome, this mindfulness thing. Yeah, sure. I think of mindfulness as uh, a goal and a tool that can be used to help us deal with mental stress. We know a lot about stress biology over the years, and we know there are lots of different kinds of mental stress. There's you know, acute stressors, there's naturalistic stressors, there's stressful event sequence, there's chronic stressors, distant stressors. We can go back and talk about all that. But we've known for a long time that mental stress has an effect on our other biological systems. And the, the one that's probably been studied the longest is hypertension, right? Blood pressure. About 40% of Americans have high blood pressure. Again, not all due to mental stress, but it's a it's a component of it. You know, as we're recording this, we are in the in the midst of the COVID pandemic, and we know that hypertension is one of the risk factors for COVID nineteen mortality. So, you know, hypertension and the role that mental stress plays in it, you know, shouldn't be just dismissed as new age mumbo jumbo. It's been you know clinically established for frankly decades. So we know 
that mental stress impacts these other biological systems. When we talk about epigenetics, we're talking about, and you've heard me use this analogy before, you know, wearing grooves in the pavement, you know, the same thing over and over again, whether it's cigarette smoking, alcohol, lack of exercise, or on the plus side, regular exercise. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that chronic stress can do to our epigenome, to our ability to turn on and off the metabolic pathways or really the physiological pathways that respond to stress. And I think we should talk about that in, in more detail. We can come back to it. The other piece of epigenetics that I think is fascinating to me is that we are now seeing evidence that these epigenetic patterns, that there's, there's really a window of malleability, that epigenetic patterns begin being established in utero, right, while your mom is pregnant with you. And those patterns, you know, once established, can impact you later in life. And we now have data, for example, in rats, where pregnant rats subject to a mental stress, which is uh, usually uh, repeated forced swimming, that changes in their cortisol response pathways can be imprinted or passed down to their progeny in a way that'll last, you know, perhaps certainly one, sometimes maybe two generations, but it's not genetic. It's not a change in the genetic sequence. And so it can be uh, reversed. And so that's just a fascinating uh, area of quote unquote imprinting biology and the role of epigenetics. And now we have evidence, um, you know, not just in animal models, but also uh, in humans that this, this, this exists. For all you mothers and fathers out there, don't, <laughs> don't despair. We haven't ruined our children, I, I hope, in, in utero. But as somebody told me, we, you know, not long ago, of course we've ruined our children. It's their job to fix themselves through their entire lives. No matter how good a job we've tried to do, it's difficult to be a perfect parent. And I imagine if there's somebody out there hearing this, I know when I first heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, did what did we do to our children before they were born? <laughs> it'll all be okay. So maybe the way to start digging into the topic is, is really just kind of start, I guess, the top down. And I think a lot of people are, are probably familiar with, the, or they've heard of something called the sympathetic nervous system or in the parasympathetic nervous system. You know, the sympathetic nervous system is, is fight or flight. And the parasympathetic nervous system is, you know, rest and relax. Uh, we have another stress response center, which is called the, the HPA the thalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and that helps regulate the release of cortisol. And that influences many bodily functions, metabolic rate. It has you know, psychological impacts, largely manifested through dopamine and serotonin, as well as immunological function. So your peace of mind or your mindfulness can be directly related to how well your immune system functions. And in mental stress, it's been shown again, in humans across multiple diseases, increases your risk of disease by depressing your immune system. It's something that is so fundamental to our health seems to get short shrift when people think of the pillars of their health that are often focused on their weight or their nutrition 
you know, exercise seems to come in a close second to that. But I don't think most people realize that mindfulness is a lever that is at least as big as those first two in terms of maintaining your health. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's going to be, you know, not for everybody, but for some, that's an eye opener right there. You and I have had these many conversations about what, you know, what we do in the kitchen and what we do for exercise and, and then to think and, and to hear what you just said, which if I heard you correctly, that a mindfulness practice or an awareness of what it is and how it affects us is of equal import to whether we're eating a cheeseburger or salad and if we're getting some, you know, meaningful movement on a daily basis. And I think that's, yeah. that's going to be a little shocking to some people. Let's start there as, as the conversation. And how do we build an awareness of this? That mindfulness is important and should be part of your daily, you know, weekly life, just as, you know, nutrition and exercise should be. You know, for some people, it, you know, comes across as, you know, new age mumbo jumbo. You know, I'm not going to meditate. I'm not going to practice Tai Chi. You know, there are other ways to get there. Um, you know, Dean Ornish has, has shown that a weekly card game with your friends is part of, of, you know, healthy living, healthy mindfulness. There are many paths to get there. You and I might choose to get there through spending some time out on a trout stream, which we've often talked about the mental refreshing aspect of that. But I think we need to start with why don't we have more recognition of how important this is and how do we get people to, pardon the pun, get their heads around how important this is? We hear a lot, you know, it's one of the reasons I dance around it a little bit is, you know, I've heard plenty of people say, oh my gosh, if I hear mindfulness, if I hear the word again, it's going to, you know, what the heck, as you said, new age mumbo jumbo, it can be too much for people. And hopefully here, you know, we can peel the onion, which I believe we're already starting to do. I feel that way, where we explore and explain and share. And, and one of my intentions here at ATBS, the podcast is to provide information in a non-dogmatic, non-judgmental form or fashion. So here we are, nothing that comes out of Richard's mouth or mine is going to be dogma. It's just, let's get our heads around it. So let's peel that onion. We've got different stressors, which we're going to go back to. We're aware of our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems and what goes on and the benefits thereof. I, at least I'm familiar and I, and I don't know, I think it, it didn't come as a surprise to me that when we are in the fight or flight mode, our immune system is essentially on hold because if we're running from a saber toothed tiger, and we need to be able to run and fight or run and escape for seven minutes, our immune system doesn't matter. It's irrelevant while we're running because if we don't outrun the saber-toothed tiger, we're going to die. So is that somewhat accurate? You know, there's several instances of that physiologically where, you know, short-term requirements always trump the long-term effects. And, you know, another example that isn't related to mental stress per se is in, in vitamin K. You know, vitamin K is something that is used to prevent blood clots, but also in the long term, it helps protect against coronary artery disease through slightly different mechanisms. Well, the enzymes that are required for blood clotting 
have a much higher affinity for vitamin K than do the ones that are protective against coronary heart disease. In other words, if you're bleeding to death, I'm going to use my vitamin K right then and there. I'm not going to hold it in reserve for 50 years to see if I get heart disease. You know, biology is replete with, with those examples. Going back to your, your, your statement about not being dogmatic, there are many paths to achieve mindfulness, and we see the paths that Eastern philosophy has taken through meditation and, and Tai Chi and Qigong, et cetera. There's been probably less investigation really into how Western religion may get you there as well. We know that mental stress is a fairly significant component of aging, and we can now measure this with this epigenetic clock, which we've talked about in other episodes, but basically comes down to how well you manage your chromosomes. And we know that over time, we get you know, worse and worse in our ability to, to manage that, and we can measure this. What's very interesting is that religious people tend to live longer lives. Religious people tend to live longer lives. And the interesting thing about that is it doesn't seem to matter what religion. doesn't seem to matter whether it's Christianity or Islam or Judaism or what it is. It's the importance of belief and belief. And I think that's pretty compelling because it tells you that the common denominator is really what I want to call rested and relaxed and having a, a positive mental outlook on your present and your future, as well as your past. And the health benefits of that, as least as measured by human mortality, are all around us. If that's the goal, right, a longer, healthier life, I think we have to realize that there are many, many ways to get there. And what works for you is yeah, maybe not the exact same thing that will work for me. And so I think what's important is, you know, find a practice, whether it's Tai Chi or prayer or fly fishing, that gives you mental refreshment and stay with it. Right. And, and this goes back to, I think, what you were talking about that you know it's really about these things over time right if you eat a cheeseburger yesterday your your epigenetics aren't going to change dramatically right it's about habits and what have you been doing over the last month or six weeks and i just actually have my prosper testing kit just ready to go back in the mail thank you very much and this is a fine time to let people know that you know, richard is the founder and principal at Prosper, and you can find them at liveprosperstrong.com. And if you use ATBS in the promo code, you'll get a discount on your first epigenetic test. And it's not a test to find out what you did today or yesterday. It's, you know, how are you doing over a longer period of time? And to hear you say that, what is it that feels right that gives you that peace of mind, that mental outlook that you can stick with? I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle. Like, what can we do on a regular basis? So that's interesting. So there's what to do, how to do it, and 
I think what's also important for people is a sense of how do I measure my progress? If we put it in the context of dieting or exercising, there's a lot of interest in what to do, right? What diet should I be on? Do I need to be on the Atkins diet, the whatever it is, the Miami Beach diet, the keto diet, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, I'm not a big fan of diets. I'm more a fan of a healthy lifestyle. So there's, you know, what should I do? How should I go about doing it? And then how do I measure the results? Well, a diet, you know, we're going to use a, a scale and a mirror are probably the tools that most people use to judge the efficacy of their diet. When it comes to exercise, again, it could be as simple as, you know, how many push-ups I can do, you know, how much weight can I lift, how fast can I run, bike, swim, hike, whatever it is that I'm doing, how out of breath do I feel when I do it? So there's a there's a feedback mechanism. And I think, you know, you and I have both dieted, quote unquote, you know, seen the effects of healthy eating on our bodies. We've clearly have seen the effect of healthy exercise in our body. When it comes to mindfulness, I think it's a little bit more challenging for most people, especially just dipping their toe in it. What is it should I do? Do I need to, is it Qigong? Is it Tai Chi? Is it meditation? Is it yoga? Is it, is it prayer? Is it fly fishing? What is it that I need to do? How do I know I'm doing it right? And then how do I measure quantitatively? You know, is it working? And I think for right now, most of the measures are going to be qualitative, right? How do you feel? How do you feel? And asking yourself that question. Perhaps, you know, in the future, you know, without being a, a shill for Prosper, we can begin to manage or measure the impact of good mindfulness practices on your epigenome. But as you point out, it changes slowly, takes weeks and weeks and weeks to see that change show up. We advocate that people test once every 90 days. And I think it's hard for a beginner to sustain. Most diet and exercise regimens fail within two weeks. So, you know, how do we make sure that a mindfulness practice doesn't fail within two weeks? Let me just give one other aside and then you go ahead and jump in. I don't have any formal data on it, but the number of people that I've spoken to who subscribe to either Calm or Headspace, which are these, you know, monthly meditation apps that people pay, you know, on the order of 10 or $15 a month to subscribe to. And then I ask them, when was the last time you listened to it? And very often is, well, it's been a couple of months. So I really need to get back to that. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit like a Spotify subscription that they don't use. And frankly, I can find plenty of meditation modules on my Spotify account. I don't need to, to go to those dedicated meditation apps. And having said that, I still don't meditate enough or what I believe should be enough. If I think about what you said about, you know, diet and exercise and then mindfulness, you know, quantitative measurements versus qualitative measurements. And I was having this conversation just this morning with a good friend of mine who had set a goal for himself of getting down to a weight of 215 pounds. And he set that goal many, many months ago. And he and I have been hanging out a bit lately. I don't know, a couple of weeks ago came and said, you know, I'm at 215. 
And I, you know, congratulations, that's fantastic. And he said, you know, I got here and now I think my goal is going to be 200. And that was a couple of weeks ago. And then uh, I've heard him over the past couple of days, things have stalled. My eating habits, my exercise habits, there's no, I, I'm not getting any results. And I said, how are you measuring your results? And he said, well, of course I'm measuring on the scale. And I said, you know, now that you're down to a weight that is kind of manageable and fairly comfortable, now you can start to shape shift, right? Now you can start to move that around through exercise and fitness and, and workouts and things like that. And what I was trying to encourage him was to, was to move away from the scale as the measurement. And so then to hear you talk about, you know, most diets fail in the first two weeks and, you know, all of these other pieces that, and I've talked about this many times, what are we measuring folks you know, during the pandemic and where I live, people are active, right? They are walking and they're biking. But interestingly, when they tell you that they went out on a walk, they like to tell you how far. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been logging my five miles a day. Or, you know, I went out on a seven mile hike. There's this desire to measure and to share measurements versus how do I feel? So if I'm at 215 pounds, as my friend is, you know, how does it feel? How does it look? I can get, I can stop with the scale or he could stop with the scale and he could now go into how do I feel and start to make some modifications with mindfulness. I think, you know, because it's difficult to measure all of these things start to play into, if we tune into ourselves, become more aware of when I don't feel well, Maybe it had to do with the fact that for some people, maybe they didn't get a good night's sleep, or maybe they've had less than optimal sleep over the past couple of days, or maybe they ate pizza last night. But tuning into what it is that is having an effect on how we feel, if we do that, and I think that's kind of, that's part of a mindfulness practice. It could be accomplished through some journaling, through some tracking of, of various things. Could You could just start by tracking sleep habits. You could certainly track some food without getting, you know, too hypervigilant about it. But, oh, I, I don't feel great today. And then be able to go back a little ways, whether that's 12 hours or 24 hours, or maybe that cookie that got eaten 45 minutes ago and start to realize and, uh, and understand what makes me feel better and what makes me feel less good. Then when we get into a mindfulness practice, then we can feel the benefits because we're more tuned into ourselves, right? It's a harder thing to measure. We need to take responsibility for knowing how we feel versus I sat down to meditate and I got really frustrated because I couldn't clear my mind. And what I'm really driving for is a daily mindfulness practice versus I'm going to sit quietly. Maybe I'm going to go with some music. Maybe I'm going to try meditating or maybe it's going to be knitting. Or maybe it's going to be, you know, drawing a, a mandala, or maybe it's going to be, you know, walking in the woods, or it, as you said, could be fly fishing, could be meditation, could be something completely different. But how does it make you feel over the long haul? And, and I think we got to tune into how we feel. You know, between the two of us, what will be our tips for your listeners to make mindfulness a part of their life? I think number one for me is recognize how important it is and make the time. If you're a, a health conscious person who's already 
fairly cognizant of their diet and their exercise habits, let's apply that same thing to mental health. So number one for me would be make the time. I think the second one for me would be to lower the barrier to entry. So I'm not an accomplished meditator by any stretch of the imagination, but I do find two time slots in my day, usually when I'm right when I'm done exercising and before I go to bed. I find it easy to try and take five or 10 minutes there. And again, just try and rest and relax and clear my mind and experience some quote unquote mindfulness. What might you add to that, Jeff? Again, by ways of advice to our listeners as to how to begin to incorporate a more robust, you know, mindfulness practice into their lives. The first thing that I comes to mind is go easy on yourself. Approach it with a beginner's mind and go easy on yourself. Don't be too hard on yourself. You know, my mother is a great example of a person who understands that mindfulness is important and she struggles to meditate. She struggles because she gets frustrated because she can't clear her mind because she has a very active mind. So then what happens? Well, then she doesn't do it. I've tried to encourage her to you know, go easy on yourself. Don't be too hard on yourself. Start with a beginner's mind. Start in bite-sized chunks. And as my good friend Chris Hastings said to me years and years ago, whatever it is you're going to do, if it's going to be modifying your diet, if it's going to be modifying your exercise regimen, if it, whatever, if it's going to be starting a mindfulness practice, do whatever you can do. Decide what it's going to be. And in your decision-making process, factor in that you'd like to do it 90% of the time. 90% of the days that you wake up, you're going to proceed with a certain lifestyle choices when it comes to diet and exercise. And I think the same thing holds true for mindfulness, some kind of practice getting into it. I love that 90% rule, Jeff. That I think is a really good one across the board. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you apply it to exercise, it doesn't mean, it doesn't say, oh, I'm going to work out every single day. No. Right. It doesn't mean, you know, from a diet and nutrition perspective that, you know, I'm not going to have a cheat day here or there, so to speak. But, I'm, you know, 90% of the time I'm going to get there. Right. And I, I think that's a great approach to, again, not to set the bar too high for yourself. Right. What can I do 90% of the time? So, well, I could set aside time, like as you said, make time. And as soon as we find somebody who can make time, let me know who that person is. I think it's a funny phrase because we've all got exactly the same amount. You know, set aside the time. You and I have talked about many, you know, adventures in our lifetime that if we really want to get it done, put it on the calendar. Right. So, if that's six months out or a year out or three months out, great, get it on the calendar. Otherwise, that time's it's going to come and go, right? Time flies. And the same thing holds true from a day-to-day -day perspective. So, you know, I've adjusted some things in my life recently. So I just set the alarm a little bit earlier, which, oh, what do you know? Means I go to bed earlier. And, you know, I'm up and meditating and then I'm doing some rebounding, which, and, and then I'm in the far infrared sauna, mm, modifying that, you know, so that it's, four days a week, I think. That's my morning routine right now. And it takes a little bit of time, but I know how I feel. And, you know, some mornings I sit to meditate and, you know, it's challenging. 
it's challenging to turn the brain down and 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 settle in but it doesn't have to be you know for an hour it can be for five minutes and if all you do is try and come back to your breath and focus on the in-breath and the out-breath for five minutes you've got if you can do that nine out of ten days and carve that time out make that time whether it be as you said after exercise when you first wake up in the morning before you go to bed at night doesn't matter when and if you can do it 90 percent of the time great and then you, if you get started with that beginner's mind and again it could be it could be anything it doesn't have to be meditation but then get into a rhythm and be aware of how you feel right mindfulness is this ability to be present to be in the present moment i think one of the benefits of being present is knowing how i feel now it becomes this this loop this positive loop i have a bit of a practice i have the ability to be in the present moment a little more regularly when i'm in the present moment i have a better more clear awareness of how i feel and then it becomes a loop of goodness yeah, really interesting. So you, you said a couple of things that resonated with me. And, you know, we had spoken earlier about how do we quantitate this mindfulness thing? And, you know, one of the ways that I quantitate my own quote unquote health and happiness is by my sleep patterns. And, you know, frankly, my ability to simply live, you know, without an alarm clock. I don't, generally speaking, unless I'm changing time zones or I have an early flight or, or something, I, generally speaking, will not use an alarm clock. You know, I go to bed when I feel tired and I try and sleep, you know, largely with the windows or the shades open so that I wake up naturally with the sun in the morning. And, you know, you get yourself into a good rhythm there that, if you're not tossing and turning and, and sure, look, nutrition and exercise, you know, play a role in the quality of sleep you can get. But I think your mental health does as well. That's one of the quote unquote quantitative parameters that I try and measure to say, you know, am I sleeping well as a measure of, you know, uh, how rested and relaxed am I? Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, no, I think it's people ask how you sleep, right? Periodically. You know, do you have any trouble sleeping? And I, I generally don't. I sleep very soundly. And I think some of that has to do with just being able to turn it off and not grind. And I think some of that is from practicing, having a mindfulness practice where you learn the skill of, you know, taking your default mode network, you know, like our minds are spinning, right? What's going on in there all the time. Once you practice, whatever your practice is that maybe you can do 90% of the time and you do it for a sustained amount of time, then I, I do think that it is reflective in, in one's sleep. And for me, it's where I've gotten my start meditating is to, you know, at the end of the day, get into bed and rather than getting on the phone to scroll through CNN or see what emails came in, that's the last thing you want to be doing is staring into that blue light is to just go to Spotify and pull up a relaxation or even there are specialized, you know, modules to help you sleep. Right. And again, it's teaching your brain to slow down and 
rest and relax and be in the moment. The, the brain, as, as I like to say, is a very busy little monkey. And left to its own devices, it'll travel around all over the place. Just as we can train you know, our muscles, we can, we can train our mind as well. Yeah, agreed. I think there are other ways to measure. I think sleep is a great one. You know, can you get yourself off there? And then, and then how do I interact with other people? Right. I find that to be a important measure for me. If I'm sporting a bit too much stress of one kind or another, and we talked about the fact that there are many different kinds, but if I'm amped up about something, my interactions with others are generally not nearly as enjoyable for them or me as when I am present, aware, thoughtful in the moment where I'm able to listen. I'm able to lend a really true listening ear and I'm listening with the intent to understand, not with the intent to answer. You start to realize some of those things. Oh, I'm a better version of myself when I've practiced something and I'm in that mindful place or at least aware of it. You know, I practice a fair amount of yoga. And one of the things that gets said pretty regularly is, you know, the time that you spend on your mat is great. Now take that out into the world, go live it. Go live what you're, what you're learning and practicing here and share it with the world. Not that you have to share your asana practice with people, but share how you feel. I forget who I was talking to again, somebody just in the past couple of days that, oh, I know a friend that you and I both know, and I won't use his name, but he's been through some interesting times. And part of it was that he stopped drinking and he really needed to. And he knew that. And he said to me, Jeff, I'm just finally one day, I just decided, and I flipped a switch that I decided I was going to be happy. And my family is blown away. My children are blown away. My wife is blown away. People around me are like, wow, are you happy? And what that led to was, first of all, I said, it didn't happen overnight. You've been working on it for years and he has, and he, he acknowledged that it, it's kind of a three and a half year project, but ultimately he woke up and he decided, you know what? I'm going to be happy. It didn't happen overnight. He made a choice. And then what we talked about was just how, when he interacts with other people and he was talking about how people just take notice and, you know, we talk about vibe and energy and, and, you know, we all know when you walk up on somebody or you come into contact with somebody who is angry, stressed, they don't even have to open their mouth. You can feel it. They're lowering the vibration and it might get uncomfortable. You might be like, wow, I don't need to be in this space. Conversely, if somebody is vibrating at a high level and they've, they're feeling good and they're energized and they're enthusiastic about the opportunity to live another day in this human experience, that wears off on people. People can feel that as well. He was kind of amazed at it. And he said, well, my friend, that you know, you're, you're doing it. And it was really the first positive conversation I've had with this friend in years. And I said, I, you know, hey, man, I can feel it. We were on the phone. And I could feel it over the phone. I said, you sound great. And it's enjoyable to talk to you. So we have this ability to raise our own vibration. And if we do so, people will notice and we lift each other up. And, and I think that's one of the opportunities we have here with, with this global pandemic that everybody, it's a big deal and it's not pleasant for everybody. It's sad. It's scary, tragic. It is. I think it's an opportunity for us to step up, step in, take responsibility for our 
state of mind, our state of being. And as you've said before, you know, look, it's, we need to, if we take care of ourselves, we're healthy, mind, body, spirit, soul, well, then we're, we're in a much better position to, to be part of the global family as, as things, you know, proceed and, and progress and, 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 you know, we, we work through this. Well, I think that's a, a really interesting segue Again, going back to these, you know, what are the things that we can pass on to people to to make this easier uh, to incorporate good mindfulness practices into their life? And I, I think share the experience, right? Uh, as I say, you know, uh, a friend of mine once said, you know, meals are meant to be shared. Don't don't sit there and eat by yourself. Uh, you know, wolfing down whatever fast food you're in or or in, you know, by in your kitchen, right? No meals are meant to be shared. Um, you know, when we look at exercise, you know, the popularity of you know personal trainers, I think, goes to 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 demonstrate how popular it is to work out with someone, somebody who will motivate you and push you, right? A training partner, a personal trainer, you know, the rest of the team, etc. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to try and practice mindfulness. We're going to go off in a corner and do that all by ourselves. Mm, better to have a support group, right? And, 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 and that, do, be, that works with that everything. Can, that can be your church group. It can be your yoga class. There are many, you know, paths to the same end. And, and I, w- I would go so far as to say no one individual's path is the same. But I think you can seek out those quote unquote support groups, those, those group mindfulness efforts, um, uh, as again, as a way of, of building these habits really within yourself and, you know, taking it full circle all the way back to epigenetics, we know that habits, right? Chronic behaviors are going to show up at the level of your DNA and they're going to impact how long you live and they're going to impact how healthy you live. Chronic. Yeah. Let's, let's be chronically mindful. I like that. I think I'm going to do that. I'm that that's going to be my goal. I'm going to chronic mindfulness. <laughs> uh, Richard, as always, I, I think we've, uh, we've, we could probably stay in this subject for quite some time and knock it around, but I think we've covered, uh, do you feel like, uh, we've gotten from your perspective, most things out? Yeah, I think I think we have. It's uh, but it's always fun to come back to in the future. Yeah, exactly. I think we can leave the door open. Uh, a couple of quick items. Um, again, find Richard Hamilton at liveprosperstrong dot com. Direct to consumer epigenetic testing and lifestyle recommendations. ATBS is your promo code to get a discount. Richard, as always, uh, I appreciate our friendship. I appreciate you spending the time shedding some light on on some things that, uh, you know, as I've said to many people, hey, Richard is the smartest guy that I know. So I appreciate you sharing uh, your your background and your knowledge with myself and and listeners. I feel like every conversation I have on this show, I, I get to be, I'm so fortunate to be able to hear what people are saying and glad to be able to share it. So thanks for being here today, Richard. Always a pleasure. Look forward to the next time. We will do it again. Take care.
Thank you for listening, and thank you to Richard for sharing his time and his knowledge with us. I always feel more informed after a chat with Richard. If you're enjoying ATBS the podcast and you'd like to help build this community, let your family, friends, and colleagues know about the podcast by word of mouth or social media. Until next time, be curious and keep on thriving.